0: Hello and welcome back to Subspace Radio. It's me, Kevin Yank.
1: And me, DJ Rob Lloyd.
0: We are here to talk about Strange New Worlds Season 2, Episode 3, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Rob, this is another Shakespeare quote, if I'm not mistaken.
1: It is. They go hand in hand, like ice cream and whiskey, Star Trek and Shakespeare... The perfect combination, following on a long tradition of Star Trek episodes named after Shakespearean quotes. I think even from from this particular passage from Macbeth, there's a classic original series episode, and all our yesterdays. And of course, the multiple quoting of Shakespeare in Star Trek VI. What more do you need?
0: The thing that popped out in this episode that we're going to discuss at greater length as it echoes into Star Trek history is the idea of... Shifting the goalposts or correcting a perceived inconsistency in Star Trek
1: history after the fact. This is a big contentious issue. It's it's exploding online at the moment. Yeah. Like we're in our own lovely little bubble and we listen to each other and we have commonalities and disagreements here or there. But there's... Quite a lot of people who do not like the status quo, as it were, being shifted or adjusted accordingly. They like Mm. things the way they are, the way they should be, and that's how it is and always should be. And other people a lot more flexible and able to keep up with uh, the changing structure of this constant evolving narrative canon that is Star Trek.
0: It's a relatively small element just dropped in at the end of this episode of just, oh, by the way, this explains the shift in the timeline for the eugenics wars that were originally set to occur in the 1990s, according to the original series. And now it happens sometime in the 2050s, and that we are led to believe is because of All of the kind of temporal Cold War jockeying that has happened, all the little incursions that secret Romulans have made into Earth history, it still happens. It just happens a little later now. And that buys us some time to make some more Star Trek that has a chance of coming true.
1: And Kevin, that is a very well-grounded, calm, logical explanation of it. And there are other people who, I mean, I get this all the time within Doctor Who, canon as well but yeah star trek in many ways was started by one man's vision and then it shifted Mm. and evolved through especially its resurgence in the 90s and how they divert off that original roddenberry vision of the future and of course obviously nicholas Meyer took it off track and made it more space navy in star trek 2 but whereas doctor who always evolved because it never had a a bible as it were at the start like Ah, roddenberry did its continuity is messed up because it has no continual continuity it shifts and changes and star trek is the longer it goes on is realizing as this can be flexible and changes and there are fans who go along with it and there are fans who just go no this is linear this is structured it is one line and that's all it is and it's amazing yeah how that as you said just a little shift here to give us a bit more time has caused ripples within a loud but small vocal group
0: so we'll talk about some other episodes where that sort of thing has happened in mm-hmm. the past. But first, let's talk about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. What did you think, Rob?
1: I really liked it. I really loved it. I loved the the concept of it. Our captain was sidelined yet again. So I think this is all tied in with the real life Anson Mount needing time off to be with his family and his newborn child. But that brought James T. Kirk back, our new version mm-hmm. of James T. Kirk, back into the fray and going on a time travel mission. He was, of course, from a parallel universe with La'a. Again, another parallel universe,
0: Kirk. We did get to meet the prime universe, Kirk, on a Zoom call at the end Finally. of this episode. But other than that, it's been they've been teasing us with Jim Kirk. We're,
1: we, when are we going to see all the, the real Jim Kirk? With the real Jim Kirk, st- please stand up, please stand up. Mm. And it, yeah, it was sort of like, where is this episode going to go? Is it going to be action adventure? Is it going to be time travel conundrum? Is it going to be... Uh, Where yeah. it's going to go, Rob, is to Canada.
0: <laughs> I was really happy to see Canada, future Canada. I'm a, I am am a proud Canadian myself. And when they landed in Toronto and identified it, as Toronto, on the one hand, you're like, well, yes, that makes sense. That's where you're filming the show. It's cheap to step outside your front door and say, look, we're in Toronto, and add a couple of CG enhancements to make it look futuristic. But otherwise, it's pretty much Toronto of today. But, you know, so often we go to other parts of the world in Star Trek, and it's great to get a canonical glimpse of
1: future metropolitan Canada. I was tickled by that. Well, Toronto has become sort of like Hollywood of the North, as that said, so yes. many TV shows do shoot up there, like the Arrowverse series, like The Flash and Arrow and all those type of shows shot up in Toronto. I think that line of James T. Kirk saying, oh, it's New York was a little bit of a meta reference to the fact of Toronto has played New York so many times because it does have its own sentient presence. Of course, it must have been relieved to, for Toronto to finally play itself.
0: There there was an interesting line by our fake Romulan later when she's helping them out at the traffic stop and like doing some fast talking from the side of the street to get them out of trouble. And she says, D- you're discriminating against him as an American. And I was like... Wow, what are we meant to believe is going on in the 2050s here with Canada and America? Like, are Americans truly discriminated against north of the border? Or is that just something a Romulan spy made up that hoped it would make sense?
1: A tantalizing taste of uh, what's to come. But there's great odd couple type of the team up between La'an and Kirk. And like, they're having to begrudgingly work together. The more relaxed Kirk with the more focused and determined La'an. Hot dogs were involved with no sauce or mustard or anything. Yeah, it
0: was weird. I said out loud, aren't you going to have some mustard at least? (laughs) Uh, It was weird.
1: It was very weird. And then we get a a little taste of romance, which I thought was handled really well. To get that all in 45 minutes, it's a lot to cram in but it was believable. It was
0: really good. So much of this rests on the performance by Christina Chong as La'an and she nailed it
1: here. She's incredible. Um, She's absolutely incredible. I, I
0: just want more La'an now. I want this the Star Trek La'an show. But at the same time like this is how you do uh, it's You look at Discovery and you go, we we, we want to tell some stories about someone who's not the captain of a ship, at least not yet. And so we will make it Star Trek Michael Burnham. And it's all about Michael Burnham. And Michael Burnham is effectively a superhero in the Star Trek universe by the end and rises to captain a ship. And here... It trades much more on the strength of the performances and the strength of the characters. I don't need to feel like Laon is on the fast track to a captaincy in order for me to buy into a story about her as a character. And so I love this so much that... Strange New Worlds is getting a lot of mileage out of its ensemble about individual members of its ensemble because each one of them is a strong enough actor and a strong enough character that they can carry a story all by themselves. And I don't miss the rest of the cast. I trust they'll be back next week. Mm. And getting up close and personal with Laon here, seeing her, against her own better judgment, fall for the rascally Jim Kirk here stranded in 2050s canada i i bought it hook line and sinker i loved it and it was heartbreaking at the end when she lost everything and was alone in her grief and couldn't talk to anyone about it that last moment where she like puts down the pad and and just switches off the call with Kirk and just collapses into tears i was i
1: was like wow she is good yeah wow she is good Not bad for a um, British actor who got her start in a Matt Smith Doctor Who era story, A Good Man Goes to War. She was amazing in that, and it's good to see her. Oh my, I
0: have to go back and watch that. I don't remember her in that at all.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. She has a, a, a crucial part within A Good Man Goes to War. Now, last time we had the appearance of James T. Kirk, you had some thoughts on the performance. How did you find this return performance of Kirk? Look, it's much the same for me
0: here. I do not see in his performance the character that we got to know so well as William Shatner's James T. Kirk. And um, Love Them or Hate Them, those J.J. movies, I felt like Chris Pine did a version of James T. Kirk that I recognized. It felt like the same person to me. He made choices from the same emotional truth. And I... I am not getting that from James T. Kirk here. What I'm getting is a character named James T. Kirk who I like and I enjoy on screen. I am there for this James T. Kirk and the stories we will get to tell with him. But I kind of have to do like a mental uh, rounding up of, okay, we're going to pretend this is the same person. It doesn't feel like the same person, but we will accept for the logic of the story that they are the same person. I don't know if you were going to get there. The actor has done some interviews where he says he's deliberately steered away from doing an impression or an impersonation about what has been done with James T. Kirk in the past. And in part, this is a younger James T. Kirk who is still growing to be the James T. Kirk that we knew in the original series. But it's still a bit of a gap for me. I think... It's not going to be resolved, but it doesn't necessarily need to be resolved for me to enjoy this characterization for its own sake.
1: Yeah. 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 I felt that while watching this one, I uh, just went, yeah, he's an entity unto himself and I can see the choices he's making is not to emulate a Shatner at all. Mm. And I love the fact that they're leaning into, even though they haven't actually shared any screen time, I love how they're leaning into his connection with Sam. I'm just, they're going, too. great. That's great. That's really good. Now give him some screen time together for heaven's sake! Like just when that he goes, moment
0: of Sam's alive. Okay, oh my now, god! Now yeah. I can accept that your timeline is the best timeline because all we <laughs> got to see of Sam originally in the original series was um, a dead body. William Shatner lying dead on the floor with a mustache. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then at the end, he comes back and he goes, "I'm just here to talk about Sam." He goes, "Oh no, what's Sam done?" What's he done yep.
0: <laughs> yeah so it's really good that stuff's very satisfying for sure
1: beautiful little foreboding drop and uh, appearance of Carol Kane yes. Helium, in, in back in they had to do a, yeah. they had to do some big travel to get from canada they did like into america apparently
0: jim kirk won a lot of money in the park playing chess in order to be able to bribe not once but twice the border guards (laughs) to cross the border into the united states which uh you know i kind of went you went where and how quick and a re
1: and a really good hotel room as well that's a penthouse oh yeah that
0: was a nice hotel i want to know where that hotel is i
1: want to stay there (laughs)
0: But yeah, it was... But uh, Pellier was delightful and that whole scene was entertaining enough that I just went with it. I was like, yeah, I don't believe that you made it across the border with the resources at your disposal, but I want to believe. <laughs>
1: uh, and as soon as, yeah, Carol Kane shows up, all is right with the world. Yeah. Are you warming to Pellier more now after... after? Yeah, she's she's no
0: less weird, but I'm starting to have fun with the weirdness. Her accent is absurd, but so consistent. Like, there are so many things going on there that it could just be a mess that changes from week to week. But she has zeroed in on something that is both like at 11 in terms of absurdity, but also rock-solid consistent. That The character does not change. The character is the character. And so I am on board with Pellier now.
1: And, Kevin, you have just hit on the secret ingredient that has made Carol Kane the success she has been for nearly 40 years or over 40 years. Weird she,
0: accents. We
1: well, yeah, she got her big break on Taxi. She was brought in as Andy Kaufman's love interest. So I'm doing it in inverted commas from the same made-up country that Andy Kaufman's mechanic was, and she matched him. So that was a character, his foreign guy was a character just created by Andy Kaufman, and Carol Kane was brought in and go, you have to copy something that is so unique and specific to Kaufman, and she did. And it was near the tail end of Taxi, so it was fading, but she was incredible, and she's done weird accents in all pretty much everything she does, like her work in. Princess Bride, her work in fairytale theater, her work in Scrooge. You just accept you get 100% commitment and you get weird, bold, incredible choices that work because of her commitment to that.
0: The writing around her character is great, too. I just love the choice of, I'm not an engineer. <laughs> this isn't an engineer's workshop. What are you talking about? And of course, when you live that long, you go through multiple careers. Multiple uh, careers. So- very good. I, when Laan came back and Pellier was on the bridge there, I was like, do you recognize her? Do you remember her? Oh, no. she's She was pretty drunk in that scene. I <laughs> probably doesn't remember her at all. Probably forgot her 10 minutes after they left.
1: I am looking forward to going back and rewatching and over-analyzing that final scene to go, is she looking? Is that a knowing look? Is that not? Or is mm. that just a drunken look? Yeah. And of course, it wasn't that much of a shock, but it was a shock moment of that Kirk being killed off from yeah. that timeline. Yeah.
0: That whole yeah, that that got me. The Romulan spy Sarah was delightful as well. She played it. She played a character that, for some reason, I could buy that she was a Romulan agent, but at the same time was not doing any of the arch high status villain stuff that you normally see from Romulans. I don't know. It was just the pale skin and dark hair that made me think Romulan. But whatever it was. There was something Romulan about her that when it was revealed, I was like, I'm an idiot. Of course, that's the, <laughs> the Romulan spy. But, but at the same time, such an interesting... We didn't get to spend a lot of time with her, but there was more there than was on the script page. And that's a testament to the work the actor was doing.
1: And that leads to the final climactic moment, of course, where La'an gets to meet her descendant and we get to see the child version of one of the biggest and most infamous villains within Star Trek, a child version of Khan.
0: Yeah, and as soon as the name plaque was on the door and it said Khan, and my encyclopedic brain for Star Trek facts is spinning and going, what Khan is behind that door? Is it like (laughs) a university professor? Surely... Khan is already off in sleep on the Botany Bay by now, as far as we know. So who is this Khan? What's behind that door? And then when they open it and it's a young child, I'm like, okay, it's baby Khan. How can that make sense? I want it to make sense, but I can't figure out how it makes sense. And then they're like, yeah, this happens 50 years later than it used to. Uh, Yeah, the Romulan had to wait around.
1: They went back to the 90s and had to wait around.
0: (laughs) It's very interesting. It's unexpected enough, it's a big enough swing that, like, I felt like if they made a small change, the narcissism of minor differences would have me more upset about a small change that feels arbitrary. A big change feels like, okay, that's purposeful. That takes us somewhere interesting. A big change will have big repercussions. And I want to, I'm curious what those are going to be now. So I was willing to go along with it, at least in the moment.
1: Yeah. And it was very much a case of sci-fi doing what it's best at is answering those big questions. So everyone asked that if you had the ability to go back in time, would you kill Hitler as a baby? Especially
0: if Hitler was your ancestor.
1: Yes, exactly. And Hitler was an augmented psychopath. But it's also that case of the ultimate evil. What good comes out of that? And so clearly we have seen a reality in this alternate reality of where the decision to kill Khan when a baby Resulted in actually a worse timeline for Earth and that universe. So, actually having the horrors of what Khan did actually results in a better future. It's yeah, all that. It's a bigger. Juicy
0: stuff. It's a bigger version of City on the Edge of Forever, where Kirk has to let his girlfriend die in a traffic accident, John Collins, in order to restore the future timeline. It's another ver- bigger scale version of that. And I really appreciated that as an, as an echo of Star Trek's past.
1: Yeah. That whole combination of a bigger ramifications, but uh, this is your family. This is your heritage. The necessary
0: evil. Yeah. Horrific, enormous necessary evil. Yeah.
1: So three episodes down
0: and two killer episodes. Um, Yeah, I think this is my favorite so far. They're going from strength to strength. And if the season keeps building like this, I don't know where we're going to be by the end. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know if we're going to get more Kirk. I I think we've been given a hint that there is more Kirk in the offing. But this feels to me like the original story that Paul Wesley was cast to be Kirk for. Uh, My understanding is that his appearance in the season finale of season one was a thing they did after Kirk. That, that, that was tacked on as right. a second idea and that originally he was cast to appear as Kirk in season two. Right.
1: So I wonder how much more of him we
0: have in season two. To yeah, work. yeah.
1: I think he's working well within the show and working with the cast and they're definitely enjoying the development of where they what they can do with the, this character.
0: So let's talk about course corrections or timeline changes in Star Trek history. Things that were changed to hopefully make things make more sense that may have rankled fans in the process. The dreaded R word, retcon. Retcon. Yeah, which is- a retrospective continuity story.
1: Yeah. Look, doing this podcast has finally rubbed off on me and I'm stepping outside of my comfort zone. More often, more regularly now, because I think it's a disservice. It's not a disservice to Deep Space Nine because I love it so much, but it is a disservice to this podcast and our dear listeners and your good self that I don't spread my wings a bit. So I have returned. I have gone back to the place that I went to last week. I have gone back to Enterprise
0: Hey, Kevin. I think we picked the same stuff, Rob. So we're gonna we're gonna have a great conversation.
1: I am gonna be looking at, and I hope you're looking at as well. Yeah, the two part story from season four, Affliction, Affliction and Divergence, Divergence, yeah. where they decided to answer the question that nobody really wanted to answer, and nobody really wanted the <laughs> answer to, and everyone was very happy with how it was answered as a throwaway line in Deep Space Nine: Trial and Tribulation. But yes, they went and did it anyway. Why the hell do the Klingons look different? in the original series than they do in the movies and the subsequent 90s TV shows and on. Yes,
0: so for those of you who may be catching up here, in the 1960s, when Star Trek The Original Series was made, Klingons were largely played by white actors with lots of bronzer on their face (laughs) in a choice that would not stand up to scrutiny in today's modern sensibilities. And they had maybe some extra big eyebrows and extra Fu Manchu mustaches Mm -hmm. on, but they were mainly like human looking people with dark complexions and bigger hair. Yes, And then when... The movies came along and the budgets got bigger. The Klingons were reimagined with forehead ridges and armor and, and everything else they've got going on. And the teeth. And, and teeth, yeah, scraggly teeth. No ears for a long time until we finally saw Worf's ears here in the last season of Star Trek Picard, satisfying the long-running question of do Klingons have ears. That change... Gene Roddenberry famously said, I don't think we need to explain it. People are intelligent. They know. know. We got some more money. We decided to use it to do something interesting. That is meant to be how Klingons were all along. All along, yeah. Yeah. In our imaginations. And it just the historical document that we were making with Star Trek did not have enough money to fully represent Klingons to their full fidelity. And we are asked to squint and blur our vision and understand that that's what they were trying to represent mm-hmm. all this time.
1: Suspension of disbelief.
0: Yeah. But... There were just enough fans who always asked the question, why were they different? Is there a story there? Could there be a story there? Maybe it would be interesting for there to be a story there. And they teased us with it in Deep Space Nine Trials and Tribulations, as you
1: mentioned, Rob. Very well. Very beautifully handled. To celebrate 30 years of Star Trek during Deep Space Nine's fifth season, the crew of the Defiant are sent back to the original series, Time, where the Tribbles episode is happening and they need to stop a bomb within a Tribble going off and changing the course of history. And while they're there, they get all closed up like they're in the original series era. Warp has to put on Cossack clothing to hide his bumps and stuff. And they're sitting down at a cafeteria on the base and O'Brien, Odo and Bashir look over and they go, "Oh, well, they're Klingons. And they go, what? And then they look back at Warp and he just rather uncomfortably going, we do not talk about it with outsiders. And that's it, and that's <laughs> it, and they just move genius. on. Genius, genius. i will be watching a ah. lot of online docos and fan stuff about about that type of stuff, and because during this time, uh, Ronald D. Moore, who went on to do Battlestar Galactica, was working on Deep Space Nine at the time. He goes. It doesn't need an explanation. That's it. That's enough. Just move on. That's better
0: than any explanation we could tell. It was kind of the idea. And there was no escaping it either. Like the conceit of the episode is they used the old footage from the original Mm -hmm. series and placed our modern characters into it. And as long as you were going to have a wharf on screen alongside those 60s Klingons, the question had to be asked. Otherwise, all of our characters would look irrational. (laughs) So (laughs) the fun thing was they're like, yeah, let's turn it into a joke because that is more satisfying than attempting to explain this thing. And it was great for quite a few years until- um, We cut ahead. Enterprise was
1: looking for story ideas in its fourth season. I found it very interesting. I I knew very little about- enterprise obviously because i haven't seen much of it but watching the docos online have been really fascinating to find out about season four especially because they pilot and Braga had moved on they had a new showrunner The budget from upn the paramount led network that enterprise was the flagship on cut the budget to from 1.7 million dollars an episode to like eight hundred thousand or whatever so one of the budgetary restraints and what they did is they decided to make pretty much every episode a two or three a two-parter so therefore to cut down on hiring of actors using the same sets same makeup all that type of stuff so we get a two-parter which should have been a one-parter exploring how the klingons looked human.
0: i i have been bemoaning the state of enterprise in some recent episodes of this podcast but To research this, I watched a significant amount of season four Enterprise, and I have to say, despite the budget cuts, despite the sense that this show was on its last legs before cancellation, I have to say, I enjoy season four of Enterprise more than any other part of enterprise. In a sense they were kind of in a we have nothing to lose state here. Mm-hmm. There was the fresh fresh hand at the wheel with Manny Coto as showrunner and yeah. he was a Star Trek fan mm-hmm. and he knew what Star Trek fans love is finding cracks in the canon to tell stories from. And that is what season four is from beginning to end after they resolve the weirdness of being trapped in World War II at the start of the season They bring us back, and then the rest of it is, let's go to Vulcan and learn some stuff about Vulcans that we've never learned before. Yes. There's a three-parter about uh, Eric Soong, a descendant of Khan Noonien Soong and a precursor to the Soong that creates data, and it is connected to this episode. We get a three-part story about Augments and and a Augment crisis that happens here,
1: and we get our mirror universe story as well in season four.
0: And those things are all each of them by themselves and together are examples of stronger, more confident storytelling, taking bigger swings than I think Enterprise had done in any of its three first seasons.
1: Yeah, I've heard. I've heard season three is actually a good course correction and sort of like a series arc which is quite yeah. good. And season four was still like ramping up that quality as well. They was just running on fumes. And so the show already had plans for what they were going to do with season five. They were going to alter the Enterprise to look a bit more like the the original series Enterprise. They were going to bring on Jeffrey Coombs' character as a regular. They had that going that everyone wanted it to happen except the entire viewing audience and UPN because Star Trek it had been going for what 15 years in this new format and at the start of the noughties new TV shows and new formats were filling up that genre quota.
0: Yeah. I think it is somewhat of a shame that two-parter about Klingon's mutation is probably the weakest story here in season four of Enterprise having watched it I had trouble sitting through it. I had trouble maintaining my attention for two full episodes. By the end, I wasn't entirely sure what had happened with Phlox and the Klingon scientists and the virus. And my understanding is what happens here ultimately is that the Klingons have gotten hold of the Augment virus. It's very interesting to me that this story has us understand that the same genetic modifications that enabled Augments to become the threat that they became on Earth was used in an attempt for Klingons were feeling, we need to keep up with these humans. If they're going to make Augments, we need to make super Klingon Augments if, as if well. If two
1: Augments could take down an entire Klingon yeah, ship.
0: As they do in the three-parter about Augments with Brent Spiner, yeah. And in the end, Flox manages to defang this virus and go, it will now complete its first phase, which is it takes your forehead ridges away and makes you look human, but it will not do its second phase, which is give you superpowers. And so now there is this rampant defanged virus that is going to sweep through Klingon society and make a bunch of f- flat-skinned Klingons.
1: Are you watching it go, okay, so this is where they explain it but they actually don't. It is so complicated. So it's not just that story. It's the story of Trip going on to the Columbus. It's got the story of Malcolm Reed and his- It's the Columbia, I believe. Columbia. Yeah. And Malcolm Reed's allegiance to, yeah, section 31. But they went, okay, so let's explain this. It was the Augment's thing, but then it got infected by the flu, which made it changed. And then it has three stages. And the first stage isn't contagious, but the next stage is, and then the final stage is death. And then there's this, and then there's that. And then we have to do this, but then we have to put it into a human. And then we have to take it out of the human and put it here. And then we have to do that. And double
0: crosses him and says he's going to do one thing and he does the other thing. Yeah. It's just so (laughs) many layers. And it feels like all of these confusing backflips are in service of cramming a story into the cracks of canon and making it linked to as many things as possible and it is not worth it in the end <laughs> and i think brings back to brings us back to that original sentiment by gene roddenberry of it's more interesting not to worry about it
1: and going and we'll try and explain it but we will still leave some things up in the air so i'm um, yeah. there going what have i just put up with for 90 minutes like they're they're going <laughs> right so this is going to be passed on to our children for generations Oh, but then I can go into cosmetic surgery. Oh, there'll be a lot of need for that. Going, what does this mean? What does any of this mean? (laughs) What does it mean? What
0: is what is the impact on the characters we care about? Next to nothing.
1: Yeah, there's stuff in there I like. Scott Bakula was a lot better in this than he was in Judgment, and that whole essence of why they did it in that time period was that they were closer to our version of humanity. So they're a bit more rough around the edges. So Archer is a lot more aggressive and emotional when it comes to you betrayed me. You wouldn't have that type of loss of control, really, with a Picard or a Janeway. They have that anger, but still keep it that elevated level of the future. And Billingsley was incredible as Phlox. He's amazing. That energy that he has, a counterman to what Neelix was, who was meant to be a buffoon but that was just to cover the fact that he's actually quite devious but they lost that and they just made Neelix a buffoon in this the outer shell of Fox's chipper nature belies underneath he's a dedicated surgeon and a serious man and a very intelligent man and Billingsley plays that beautifully there's a great line when they talk about their family and their backgrounds and he goes so every male of your species has three wives and every wife has three husbands that must make mating complex <laughs> he goes wondrously so i'm going yeah. yeah yeah there's some great stuff in there i actually like trip trip is actually actually grew on me i'm there going i like this character and i know what yeah. happens to him is a cheap payoff i'm there going him into Paul, i don't get this place where he and
0: T'Pol find themselves of the post-Will They, Won't They, where T'Pol has had to go through with arranged
1: marriage, and Trip is, look, I'm going to need some space and some time. But it just get it gets so caught up in going, we want to explain stuff, but we're going to over-connect everything, like you said, to the augments, and to soon. And, but then we don't want to go too specific, because we still want to leave a bit of vagary, because there's still a hundred years worth of evolution before we get to the original series, and they're going... It's just utter nonsense. The
0: preceding episodes, the three-parter Borderland, Cold Station 12 and the Augments is much more interesting. There is a bit of Star Trek 2 cosplay going on, like the group of augments that Eric Soong has raised from babies and like he there are scenes where he's like leading a classroom and it's a bit it's a bit Jedi Academy sort of thing <laughs> but low budget. And as they grow up, they all get holes in their clothes so that like they they look like those scruffy 80s Uh, ruffians that you get to see in Star Trek 2. But they are all wearing the exact same clothes with the exact same holes in the exact same places to the point where it's almost a fashion choice. But it looks like an impractical (laughs) one where they must be cold a lot of the time. Especially yeah. the love interest of the augments, she has some very prominent gaps in her upper chest clothing, uh-huh. let's say yeah uh, that that are there to keep the male viewers interested, but apart from those bits of like awkwardness, the story is interesting. I think Eric Sung is interesting, seeing Brent Spiner play back, a completely yeah. unlikable, unsympathetic. Ancestor of his. It's way more interesting than it is when they do it in season two of season Star Trek two of Card. Yeah. They do it more effectively here. They do more with him. It's it is enjoyable to watch Brent Spiner want to believe in these augments and say, look, they they're just prejudiced against. They can be better than us. They can be the future. And then one by one as the dominoes fall and they betray him as their father, and he is forced to reckon with the fact that they are an unstoppable force of evil (laughs) that he is going to have to turn his back on. That is an interesting turn for Brent Spiner as a guest star, and it's mostly there on screen. The fact that this was a strong enough series of episodes, I think, is in part why they wanted to pick up that thread and go, oh, and some of that augment virus gets out and we we'll are get to tell a story about the Klingons because of it. Unfortunately, that is a weaker story. If you were going to be inspired by this week's episode of Strange New Worlds and the story about the augments shifting in the timeline, I would suggest the thing to watch would be this three-parter of
1: Borderland, Cold Station 12, and the augments with Brent Spiner. Yeah, other notable things about Affliction and Divergent is some of the cast We have James Avery, who a lot of people would know from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He plays one of the Klingon generals. He's really good at it. They bring back dear old John Schnuck, who we know as the ambassador from Star Trek IV. There shall be no peace as long as Kurt lives.
0: Very recognizable voice. Yes. Like the first thing he says with any emotion in it, you go, hang on,
1: I know that emotion. (laughs) And of yeah. course, a huge Star Trek fan and creator of Family Guy and also lead and creator of uh, the Orville, one of the second best tributes to Star Trek after De- Galaxy Quest. Of course, Seth MacFarlane is there. As yeah, one of it's the-
0: weird. Now that we he's gone on to be the captain of the ship in the Orville, it's really weird seeing him here. It is hard not to read him as the captain of the Orville who is in his spare time watching a holodeck program about <laughs> Enterprise. <laughs>
1: That you yeah when anything comes to enterprise and you see someone familiar going oh it's just Riker again in the final episode this That's is another right. cop out <laughs> thing I like the smaller confined nature of this I love how like the engine room it feels like the engine room of a submarine or or like the engine room of Firefly where it's just you have you, you're so crammed in and all that type of stuff I love that type of feel that they got a gist of and they could have gone further but I think they were tied down by the era they were in which is Always a problem with Star Trek.
0: So I guess looking back in my mind on this less successful example of the show saying there is a question in canon Mm. and we can turn that into a story. I think what we saw in Strange New Worlds this week and it is fresh evidence in my mind of just how good a job the writers behind Strange New Worlds are doing, is they did the same trick, but they did it better. They said, we are going to acknowledge and address a question in canon, but we're not going to go so far as to explain it to death, to create a big two-parter around explaining away these intricacies of canon questions that most of our audience is not aware of and doesn't care about, and ultimately does not impact the characters we care about. Instead, they said, okay, there is that question there, we are going to answer it, but the story we're going to tell is going to be impactful to La'an, and that comes first. We are not going to give you all the details, we're going to say, it shifted, this Raman had to wait around, that's all you need to know. Yeah. And way stronger way of approaching it. So, yeah, that's really all I had, Rob. This five episodes here in the fourth season of Enterprise, that to me is the one big example I had of the showrunners trying to course correct in canon. Did you have anything else you wanted to talk about?
1: I do. I went back to, I did a bit of research into it. I was fascinated by it because I had never actually seen the original episode. We've talked about it a little bit, but I wanted to look at the retconning slash evolution of the Trill. So I've been watching a bit of stuff about the behind the scenes of Deep Space Nine. I went back and actually watched the host from season four of Enterprise and to see that shift and change where it started from a practical point of view and whether it's been explained or not, because the Trill in their first appearance in season four of the next generation have the same elements, but do evolve and change and retcon quite a lot when they first appear as Jadzia Dax in the first episode of Deep Space Nine.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating that it's remarked upon less. I don't hear fans like decrying, when are you going to explain the Trill? But when you go back and watch that episode, like the actor has a very prominent forehead appliance on, and I believe it's established they can't use the transporter because of Mm -hmm. the symbiote relationship as well. Yep.
1: So basically in this episode, there's Odan, who's the Trill. They're a very mysterious species. We don't know much about them. He's an ambassador brought in, and his father helped broker this peace deal years ago between these two colonies on on the sister planet of this race. Odan is very much against transporters, despite the fact that it would be safer to get him onto the surface of the planet because taking transports, they're susceptible to intercepting ships and all that type of stuff. And it's during the course of that, they're attacked, going down the runabout with a Riker. Riker's in this a lot. Riker (laughs) is putting himself on the line a lot. And Odin reveals that they can't do any surgery on him because there's some sort of parasitic thing within him and going, no, that is Odin.
0: By this point in the story, he and Beverly Crusher have got a thing going on as well. Yes, right?
1: they've been seeing each other for a little bit, it appears. And so there's a weird, awkward. It's awkward. It's like seeing your parents flirting.
0: For some reason, it is often awkward when Beverly Crusher falls in love with someone. <laughs> we, I don't think we have yet seen the non-awkward
1: version of that. I was just grateful it wasn't a ghost yeah that's right but the scene in the turbo lift where odan and beverly are there talking and data oh data not being able to read the room going let's do all this work now and they're trying to go let's get the kid away so we can have some fun anyway beverly does not know about the trill having the symbion inside and falls in love with odan but odan isn't really odan no one knows it you get the sense
0: it's a bit of a secret like Speaking of, we don't discuss it with outsiders, that is the sense you get about the trill is that yes. it is secret information that they are carrying a
1: symbiont around
0: inside themselves.
1: And this is where, yes. Yeah, so the first big thing is the trill has the usual Star Trek heightened forehead things on their front, as opposed to the beautiful dots that appear on. Yeah, there are um, the no trill. dots. There's none no of the tattoo y thing. And, and then we find out that, unlike how it evolves in Deep Space Nine, where the personality of the host is primary and they keep the memories within the symbiont as well. In this, the hosts are just shells. And as soon as Riker offers to be the human, that Riker is gone. And yeah. there is a moment where Odin in Riker's body is talking to Picard and he says a line. Riker says a line of reassurance and. Picard goes, you reminded me of Warraka then. And Odan almost is insulted. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, and, right, and it's very binary. It's very old school right at the end where it's agonizingly hetero in its description. Right at the end, Beverly goes, oh, it's the new host here. And Worf goes, yes. goes, bring him in. And Worf goes, uh, and turns around and the new host's a woman. Yeah.
0: Look. I don't know if if I am wrong about this, if I still need to evolve on this, but I can still see a truthful human story in that twist that I think is not unkind to Beverly Crusher as a character. I can believe that someone... The way they experience love is somewhat affected by the physicality, the physical gender of the person you are falling in love with. And I, I could see, it feels interesting to me. It is at least a shade of gray for Beverly Crusher to go, I want to go there, but I can't.
1: Oh, and I it's beautifully not, said. I am not flexible enough to go there. She said, I'm not ready. I'm not evolved. Yeah. Yeah, That's It's beautifully written. But it's she's more than happy to succumb to her love if it's gorgeous Jonathan Frakes and his beard. But yes, the thing that because I my first introduction with a trill was in D Space Nine. So I am used to that. And it's quite well explained. In last week's episode, we talked about Dax, where they explain the symbiont and update it really. And I like the idea of the new host, their personality is crucial. And I watching the host with next gen, I felt uncomfortable at even the actress who came in at the end to be the host was pretty much just playing it blank. Like they had no personality.
0: Empty husk reporting for duty. Uh. (laughs) And it was meant to be that way as a one-off alien of the week. It was meant to be challenging in that way that this to our human sensibilities seems immoral. And yet a truly alien species would probably be immoral in, some, in, in numerous ways. And so we are challenged by that, and that challenge is interesting. But yeah. if you're then going to create a character that we are meant to embrace emotionally week to week and invest in, you want to strike a different balance there, which is why I think it did need to evolve for Jadzia Dax. The question is, is the change too much for you as a fan? Does it bother uh, you that these two iterations of the trill are so
1: different, but we are asked to accept that they are the same? No, because I can see how things evolve. It's, and any creators of shows have too much control to go back and explain it, doesn't always work, as we've talked about. And has happened in other franchises as well.
0: If we could do it all again, my advice in hindsight would be, come up with a different name for Jadzia's species. Make the, make it another symbiont species that is different. It's the troll, not the trill, <laughs> whatever it is. That I think the uh, the connection to Next Gen Canon did not give us enough that it was worth doing that. And I, I suspect in hindsight that's what would have been the choice, but it's so easy to say in hindsight. And it's um, especially
1: evolved as well the nature of the trill And even the nature of Jadzia, like even what we saw in episode eight, Terry Farrell's doing a great job, but she's still playing it how they originally thought, play her as this noble, honorable, young woman beyond her years type stuff. Mm. And then as they evolved, they went, let's bring a bit of Terry Farrell into this. Let's make Jadzia wisecracking and fun loving and likes to drink and gamble and has a personality as opposed to playing the noble sage in a young person's body. Let's have all that noble sage experience, but in a young person living. And that's yep. where Jadzia really takes off. The word symbiont for me is a collaboration. And whereas in host, it's very much a case of the host is a husk and it is very alien. And I accept that for what it is from what you said as well, but I loved that. Cohabitation and that working together and how the host and the symbiont work as one. And the Dax stays, so the Dax is the symbiont, but then the name of each of them. I love that culture. I love how that evolved, and it became alien, but it and it became this unifying type of presence, which I really dug in later episodes, which they carried on with one of the few episodes of Discovery I liked with the Trill character.
0: Forget-me-not with the introduction of Adira. Kudos to Discovery for not falling like into that trap of oh we want to have a trill character but there's this open question about the trill so we're going to spend two episodes explaining it to death i'm glad they didn't do that like no the the approach they're taking with the trill still feels like in in that it's just a tv show territory it was beautiful in that discovery
1: one how she stands there with all her previous hosts around her and they kind of unified and Mm. share this experience together they never yeah. really did that within D Space Nine. You had, obviously, the personalities in that episode come through each of the crew of D Space Nine inhabited it. So, yeah, Nana Vista plays an old format of it and she's like an old Nana. And the serial killer appears in, I think it was Avery Brooks's in Cisco's body anyway right. that type of stuff I like those extensions of the Trill species because they're like I talked about last week it, there's a lot of connections to Doctor Who within the justification of it and but more of the Star trek kind of way and I've always got a soft spot for the Trill at the end of the day there are surprisingly few of
0: these surviving inconsistencies in Star Trek yeah these things occasionally rise to the surface I think like Warp 10, and like, Warp 10 is this barrier that we can't go across. And if you go at Warp 10, you're at every point in the universe at once. And Voyager, to its peril, attempted to tell a story inspired by that seeming inconsistency. But mostly, Star Trek's done a pretty good job of not contradicting itself over the years. And even when it does, not getting too distracted
1: by it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this has been a good exploration of of those type of retcons and where they work and where they don't.
0: All right. I'll see you next week. Until then, see you around the galaxy, Rob.
1: Until then.